Well, we live in a time of uncertainty. You know that. Uh, everyone is uncertain. How is my health? How is it going to be? We've known that for the last couple years. What's the economy going to do? Is there going to be another world war? And so as we think about that uncertainty, we begin to think, how do we have certainty of anything? How do we have certainty of anything? And if we think about it, how do we have certainty, not just the things that are in the future, but how do we have certainty concerning the most important fact of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, the good news is that Luke, the the author Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes for certainty. If you were to turn to the very beginning of Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4, he says as much. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What you find out from that introduction is a few things. One, Theophilus is a Christian. He's been taught these things. He's already believed these things. Uh, but we also find out this. He's not an eyewitness, nor is Luke. He's taking accounts and reports from others and compiling them into an orderly account. But the purpose of all of this is for to give certainty to those who believe, those who are Christians, those who have been taught these things. And so even as we come this morning and we're going to look at Luke 24, where Luke gives certainty, he's, giving, he's recounting these events for certainty for, for Theophilus, who's probably a Roman official, but not only for Theophilus, for those who are like them, who are uh, the second generation Christians. They didn't see Jesus, but they've heard about him. As he gives certainty for that, we understand that this account is first and foremost for believers. Or to put it another way, um, one of the common things we think about, it's, you know, what's the evidence for the resurrection? Well, I could pile up fact and fact and fact and fact for you. There's plenty of evidence for the resurrection. But the fact of the matter is, what it, because Luke is writing to believers, and even as we see in this passage this morning, there will never be enough evidence to convince you unless you have your heart opened, unless God opens your heart and your eyes. And then, and only then, can you have certainty. Only then and only then do the facts coalesce. So nothing I say will convince you unless the resurrected Christ himself opens your eyes this morning as we come to the scriptures. That's what I'm praying for. That's what the members of this church are praying for right now. So let's go ahead and look at certainty of the resurrection for believers in Luke 24. And the main idea is this, as we enter the text, as we've read this morning, Repent for forgiveness and join the community worshiping Christ because of the certainty of the resurrection. Repent for forgiveness and join the community worshiping Christ because of the certainty of the resurrection. And what we're going to see is actually five kind of movements, and it follows the flow of the text. There's kind of three scenes that happen. There's a scene with the women at the tomb. There's a scene with the folks on the, the, the couple on the road to Emmaus. And there's a scene with in Jerusalem in the, the room in Jerusalem. 
And so each of those scenes gives certainty. They're kind of the ground, the, the, the basis. But then the text doesn't end there because certainty of the resurrection, it's not just, oh yeah, we proved that historical fact. It moves somewhere. It demands something, which is the final bits and the final couple points in our time together this morning. We'll find that there's a commission to be had and also community to join. But let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 12, which is this kind of first scene. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that's the women who were mentioned in earlier verses, in, or the last few verses in chapter 23, that's why we read that. So these women, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They were preparing these spices. The, uh, G- uh, Jesus was buried uh, very quickly, uh, so the final preparations hadn't been fully carried out. So the women knew that and saw where he'd been laid, so they're preparing to go and take care of that. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, there's a couple things about this. Uh, tombs in that, that, they found a couple tombs from that era. And usually, if you're average Joe Israelite, the way these tombs worked is you entered them. They had a square opening with a square entrance, and it kind of fit like a, a square stone that kind of fit like a cork in a bottle. But once you entered, there was kind of these uh, platforms where you would lay a freshly dead body, and it would decompose over a year. And then what you would do is kind of over time, hew out the tomb more and more in niches, and then you would come back after the body decomposed, gather the bones, put them in this little stone box called an ossuary, and then put it in these niches for a long-term burial. But what we find here is this isn't the average Joe Israelite tomb. This is actually someone who's a very wealthy person who owns this tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. It's a new tomb, and it has a rolling stone. It's high-tech. It, the stone rolls away from the door, and so uh, it's, it's a, it's a higher-end tomb, so to speak. And from a disciple who is a rich person, who, and it's new, so there's not these niches there's just the platform. You walk in, and there's just this platform where you lay the body for it to decompose. So it's fairly small at this point. It'll get hewn out more and more as time progresses, but it's new. It's new. So that's what it talks about when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So the stone's already been rolled away, and they go in. But they went in. when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about this. They are expecting to find a body. They are expecting to find a corpse. And as you read through all of the gospel accounts, none of the disciples, not these women, none of the men, none of them expected to find or look forward to a resurrection. They expected to find a body, which in and of itself is a measure of certainty. If this was all made up, if the apostles got together and say, okay, yeah, we know Jesus is dead, but we're going to manufacture an account to deceive people. They would, first off, all the gospel accounts would be word for word matching, but we have eyewitness testimony, so they, they have, look at it from different points of view. But also, you wouldn't write into your own account that no one was expecting a resurrection. You would, hear, you would make heroes of the apostles, and the apostles would be the first one to find them, not women. Women were not, their testimony wasn't regarded very highly in the ancient world. And so even these things in and of themselves, they bring certainty. So they didn't find the body. They're looking for a body, they didn't find the body. They probably go in, there's not much space, they don't find it, and they probably walk back out and they're talking about this. 
verse 4, why they were perplexed about this, this doesn't make sense. Another reason it doesn't make sense is the clothes are still there. If there were grave robbers, uh, the grave robbers don't nicely kind of unwrap the body and take a naked corpse through town. No, they just snatch and grab. That's the idea. They're, They're perplexed. They don't understand what's happened, but they're not expecting a resurrection. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These are angels. And as they were frightened, that happens in the scriptures. You look, and anytime an angel comes, it's a frightening time. They frightened and bound their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Literally, it's the living one. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? They're seeking among the dead. They're expecting a corpse, one who is among the dead. And the angels are saying, these messengers, angels are just supernatural messengers, these messengers, why are you looking for the living one? See, they should have, and as they're going to say, you should have remembered he predicted this. And you should have kind of expected that he's going to rise from the dead. But why? It's a mild rebuke. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And Jesus, if you were to read earlier in the book of Luke, you would find that he said exactly that. Jesus called his shots. Uh, I'm gonna, the Son of Man's going to die. He's going to die at the hands of sinful men. He's going to be crucified, and he's going to rise three days later. He said that. And every time you see that in Luke, they're confused. They don't get it, and they don't remember it. But then the angels say, hey, remember remember. And the idea of biblical remembrance isn't just, oh yeah, I called that to mind, I forgot. It can be that, but it's more than that, because biblical remembrance leads to action. It leads to belief and then action, obedience. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with, with them told these things to the apostles. Now let's pause there and think for a minute. They didn't see Jesus. Not in Luke's account and how he's presenting it anyway. They didn't see Jesus at all. What do they have? They have a report, yes, from supernatural messengers, but they have a message and a declaration, and they have Jesus' words. That's what they have. They have Jesus' words, what he predicted, and then they have supernatural messengers saying, hey, he's risen, and they believe. They believe. How do we know they believe? Because they remember, first off, it says that in verse 8, but then they return and they tell these things to all the rest. They tell these things to the apostles, meaning they believe them and they're passing them on. So you see the, the kind of chain that happens here. We have got messengers record from the angels, yes, but they're messengers giving the message to the women who do believe, and now they're the messengers who are going to proclaim the same message to the apostles. And that's exactly how for Theophilus and those like him, that's how Christian, for everyone since then, 
after the first generation of Christians, that's how Christianity works. None of us has seen the risen Christ. None of us has seen the risen Christ, so how do we know? We know, first off, because of eyewitness accounts and testimony. We know because of Jesus' words recorded in the Gospels, and we can remember them, and we can look back at them, and we know through messengers, through messengers, through those who have received the message, believe the message, and then they become messengers and pass that message on. And Luke is pointing up that fact. That's how you get certainty. True and genuine certainty comes from remembering. First off, we're going to see more than that, but first off, certainty comes from Jesus' words and the angel's proclamation. And really, what you're going to see as the narrative goes forward, this is the least tangible of Jesus' resurrection, right? We, they didn't see him. Yes, they see an empty tomb. Um, it's the least tangible of, of Jesus being raised from the dead. But their belief is actually lauded as the highest. What you're going to see as the narrative goes forward, and watch for it, is the next couple scenes, there's going to be more tangibleness to Jesus' resurrection, and yet the belief is more stubborn. Unbelief is more stubborn. And so what you see here is the, the women are held high because that's what Theophilus and those like him as Christians, that's what we have. We have Jesus' words, and we have the message, the message passed on. And that's enough. That it's enough to bring certainty, certainty of the resurrection. So they tell the apostles, but notice their reaction in verse 11. But these words seem to them as an idle tale. Uh, it's, it's more the idea they think it's nonsense. The apostles think this is nonsense, and they did not believe them. So like we said, there's the messengers. They hand off the message to the women, and the women now become the messengers, and they try to pass it off to the apostles, those who've been closest with Jesus, those who have heard all of his words, even more so, those who have been closest to him, those who should believe, and they do not. But we do see Peter investigating. Peter rose, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, that doesn't mean he believed. It means that he's confused. He sees an empty tomb. He sees these cloths, and it's like, this doesn't make any sense. Yes, I've heard this account by the women, but that, that, that's just nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. No one, they're not, no one was expecting a resurrection, not even the apostles. And that's what we have. So first, Luke presents the idea of certainty from Jesus' words in the angel's proclamation. Next, we move on to the next scene, and what Luke wants us to see here is certainty of the resurrection from the scriptures and the breaking of bread. Certainty from the scriptures and the breaking of bread. So now we switch scenes. There's a cut scene, and now the camera is on the road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them, now the two of them there, that's two of them from the room, the, the room where, yes, there's the 11 um, that are there in that room, but there's more. It's clear that there's more there. And so here we have a couple disciples from that group, and they're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure. Archaeologists haven't quite figured out where Emmaus was, but the text tells us it's, it's, it's a short distance. It's a couple hours walk, especially for people who are used to walking in that day and age. It's not 
not that far. And probably, since what we're going to see is these two disciples welcomed Jesus into their home, it's probably their hometown. So they came in for the Passover, they're among the disciples, but now they're going home. They're going home. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're probably talking about Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion and his burial. They're probably, as we'll find out, they're talking about uh, the appearance that they saw or that the, the women are reported to them. They're talking about all these things. And I love this. Verse 15, this is how Luke chooses to give the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. It's just kind of casual, right? Uh, they're on the road and they're talking, and then all of a sudden, it's kind of just understated, but it's just, just profound, right? Jesus just comes up, here's the resurrected Jesus, and he starts walking with these guys. And really the account is kind of set, it's, it's, it's ironic and comical, actually, how it all works. But there's also a serious undernote to this, because look at verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here's the resurrected Christ. He just kind of strolls up to these two. They're walking back, and they can't recognize him. They're disciples. They've seen Jesus before, and we find out later his body's perfectly recognizable. That's not the issue. What is going on here? It's a supernatural blinding of the eyes or a veil over the eyes. This is God doing this. This is God doing this. Why? Because he wants to reveal Jesus at just the right time. But it also highlights this, that the resurrected Jesus could be sitting right beside you in the pew. He could be walking along right beside you. You wouldn't recognize him unless what? The decisive moment is God opening your eyes, which we will see in the text. So he strolls up, and they don't recognize him. So we as the readers know who he is, but the two disciples don't know. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. So they just stop, right? They're walking. They stood still looking sad. Looking sad, why? Because they still don't believe. They don't believe a resurrection's happened, even though they've heard the report of the women, which we'll see here in a minute. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? See, what he's saying is, like, this wasn't done in a corner. This was public. Everyone knew about this. Everyone knew about Jesus' crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. He was put in a public place. That's part of what crucifixion does. It puts you in a public place so you can be shamed and mocked. Everyone knew about this. Now, what's Jesus doing? He's drawing them out. He's trying to get them to, he's trying to to see and get to ex them to expose themselves of what do you actually believe about me? What do you actually believe has happened? And so they relay that. After he draws them out a little bit, for, a little bit more, verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown in the north near the Sea of Galilee. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So that's their fundamental conception of him. Jesus is a prophet. There's no doubt he did deeds and miracles, and he's a mighty prophet. He's not just a prophet. He's a mighty prophet. 
It goes on, though, in verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Luke um, puts squarely the responsibility of Jesus' crucifixion on the leaders of the Jewish people. Yes, by extension, there's a culpability on the part of all Israel, but it's really at the ruler's and the chief priests that bear the responsibility of handing him over the Romans that he might be crucified. Verse 21, but we had hoped, we had hoped, see they don't have the hope anymore, we had hoped that we, he was the one to redeem Israel. That means the Messiah, the one who is the Messiah. The Messiah is the one predicted, and Jesus will lay this out here in a minute, Uh, predicted in the Old Testament from the line of David who would rule over all Israel, over restored Israel, but not only over all Israel, but the world. He would be God and man. And they're like, we had hoped he was that one. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And that ties us back to the previous episode, doesn't it? They've heard this report. They've heard the report of the women who had believed and believed rightly in Jesus' resurrection just from the report, but they don't believe. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So that's Peter, and actually we find out uh, John was there too from the Gospel of John, and maybe a couple others, who knows. But regardless, they saw the empty tomb, but they didn't believe. They didn't believe the report of the women. They didn't believe the vision of angels. So Jesus has drawn them out. Here's their conception of what has happened up to this point. It is an unbelieving, an unbelieving report. Uh, Jesus is a mighty prophet. We would hope he was the Messiah, but he's actually not. And we're, this is where we're at. We're sad. We're sad. But notice how Jesus responds. Having drawn them out, notice how Jesus responds. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, why is Jesus rebuking them? Well, one, he's implicitly rebuking them because they didn't believe the women's account, but the focus is primarily on the scriptures, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, uh, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now think about this, from the perspective of the two on the road to Emmaus, this is kind of unusual, isn't it? So you got this stranger kind of walks up and he's strolling along with you. And then he asks you, hey, recount what happened. And they do. And then the stranger rebukes them. Like you guys, Jesus is kind of presenting himself as like uh, an independent person, right? And it's like, well, you guys had access to Jesus and you, you recounted, based on what you recounted to me, and based on what we know from the scriptures, you guys are foolish. <laughs> this, this stranger is rebuking them. Now, at that point, you think, well, 
that's a little suspicious. Um, who is this guy? Uh, but again, this is God veiling their eyes so they can't recognize him. But what is Jesus doing? He's, he's highlighting all of the Old Testament. You walk from Genesis to Malachi. It's not that every single verse is about Jesus, but there is account after account after account of the career of the Messiah. And it was necessary in the Old Testament accounts, we can see this from books like Isaiah and others as well, that it was necessary. It was part of God's plan for the Messiah to suffer, to rescue his people, and then be crowned as king and enter his glory, implying a resurrection. If he's died, if he died, he suffered and died, and then he enters his glory after that, that implies a resurrection. So Jesus is saying, look, you guys should have believed the prophets. You guys should know your Bibles. You guys should know your Bibles. You're being slow of heart to believe the scriptures, which is another huge element of certainty. And Luke highlights this throughout the gospel, that the scriptures, the scriptures written by men, but men inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit and errant in the original documents, men spoke of the Christ, and what happened with Jesus exactly matches what is predicted in the Old Testament. The scriptures give certainty. And this has been a big theme in Luke. If you want to, you can turn back to Luke 16 just briefly to see this. It's kind of chilling in, in the way it predicts things. So Luke 16, if you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and all I'm going here is, is that that story, that parable, that reality, whether it actually happened, it's not said to be a parable, it could have actually happened, but it's true to reality, and remember the rich man, he's in hell, he's in Hades, he's in punishment, and, and he's like, send, send, send some messenger, send Lazarus actually, send Lazarus back to my brother's, to, so that they don't come to this place of torment. And notice how it ends. Verse 29 in Luke 16, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, the scriptures are even more certain than Jesus standing right beside you as the resurrected Christ. That's why he's rebuking them. And that's what Luke is highlighting, because Theophilus and those like him and us, we've never seen the resurrected Christ. And yet, what is our certainty? The scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, understanding that Christ has risen, because the scriptures are the word of God. God speaks, God cannot lie, therefore they are true. Therefore they are true. But then there's more to it. Verse 28, back in Luke 24. So they drew near to the village they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So this is common Middle Eastern hospitality. Uh, this isn't unusual in that sense, but this is probably their home. It makes the most sense. It could be an inn or something like that, but it makes most sense if this is the two disciples' home. So they invite him in for dinner. They invite him in for dinner, and he goes in. 
Verse 30. When he was at table with them, it's literally the idea of when he reclined, when he reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, you might ask a question, well, it's like, well, it's their home. Why is Jesus playing the host? Well, evidently, from what they heard on the road, he's like, this guy understands the scriptures. Let's give him some respect and let's have him be play host. But then... If you read verse 30, you're like, man, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? When he reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And notice what happens. And their eyes were opened. They were blinded before because God prevented them until this point. And then he opened their eyes and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Isn't that funny? He's right there. He's been right there all of the time. And then they suddenly recognize him and he's gone. So they realize what has happened. But there's an intentionality here. Luke has already highlighted the certainty coming from the scriptures. But as we see as here in 30 and 31 and also in verse 35, he's highlighting here the breaking of bread. That's the moment when Jesus was recognized. Now, like we said, verse 30 is like, man, that sounds familiar. Well, it should because it's almost the exact same vocabulary of two other places in the Gospel of Luke. One is the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke 9. In Luke 9, right before the feeding of the 5,000, Herod's like, who is this guy? It's a question of identity, of recognizing who Jesus is. And then right after the feeding of the 5,000, which uses this language where everyone reclines on the grass and Jesus breaks the bread and feeds all of these people in a miraculous way, right after that event, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. He confesses and recognizes his identity. Why is that? Well, because the feeding of the 5,000, as other gospels say, uh, and as Luke himself alludes to, reminds people of the feeding of the manna in the wilderness. God did that. God is the one to satisfy the needs of his people. And so it's a huge event to show that Jesus is the incarnate God. He's satisfying the needs of his people. He is the Christ. But then fast forward, the other place where you hear that language is at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper. And what does Jesus say in Luke 22 at the Last Supper this, he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it. What does he say? This is my body, broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. That motif of the Christ is satisfying his people, but in the sense of for their physical need. That just as he recounted to the disciples on the road, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. It was then necessary for the Christ to break his body, for his people. The Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, this isn't, just to be clear, this isn't a, a Lord's Supper event because there's no wine mentioned, but it's a callback. It's a callback. And through that, he's reminding his disciples, who is he? Who's the one that fed the 5,000? Who's the one who spoke at the Last Supper? But for Theophilus and for Christians like him and for us, what is the Last Supper, a.k.a. the Lord's Supper for us. What's going on there? It's not only, what is it? It's a remembrance of 
who Jesus is. It's a recognition of his identity. It's, as Paul will say it in 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians 11, it's a proclamation. It's a message. When we take of the elements, when we break the bread, we are proclaiming the identity of Christ. Christ is recognized because it's what? It's the word. It's the word. It's the message about Christ. It's the message of Christ given for his people, dying on the cross for his people's sins in their place and giving them life. And so because it's the word proclaimed in symbol form, that's what Luke's drawing attention to. Christ is recognized. There is certainty even when we partake together because we are proclaiming. The gospel is being proclaimed in a meal together about Christ. And you notice how they draw attention to this. It's not just the meal itself. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he called to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Again, it's the scriptures. It's the word. It's the word expounded from the Old Testament. It's all of what was predicted about Christ. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, now this is the eleven saying, this not the two, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So Peter evidently gets his own private appearance with Jesus. And so now the disciples are starting to believe. And then the two add their testimony in verse 35. Then they were told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So what's Luke highlighting? He's highlighting certainty from the scriptures and the breaking of bread. Why? Because both of those are the word. The Old Testament and the word written, the Lord's Supper, the word proclaimed, the word enacted in a complex way to show who Jesus is and what he did to satisfy the spiritual needs of his people. So we've seen certainty from Jesus' words in the angel's proclamation, certainty from the scriptures in the breaking of bread, and then finally, we get this, the certainty from Jesus' tangible appearance. This, the, final kind of ba- uh, the, the final kind of foundation for certainty. Certainty from Jesus' tangible appearance. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus, so they're in the room in Jerusalem. They're talking about it. They're like, yeah, yeah, he has resurrected. This is what's happened. And then this is amazing. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you which is kind of the common greeting, but obviously it's filled now with a little bit more freight because Jesus has done everything he has done to bring peace to his people. Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now notice what they're frightened of. They've already believed that Jesus is resurrected, haven't they? Because they just that's the last section. They said, yeah, the Lord has risen indeed. They believe this. To an extent, and yet what are they questioning here? Verse 37 says this, they were startled and frightened and thought what? They saw a spirit. What are they questioning? Christ's corporeality. (laughs) Does he have a body? (laughs) Right? Because plenty, you can think back to Samuel. Remember Saul uh, gets uh, the the, the witch of Endor to rise up uh, Samuel, and he's like this spirit, and that's happened, but he doesn't have a body. A resurrection, to have a resurrection, you have to have a body. You have to have a body. That's what resurrection is. And they think they see a spirit. They think they see a ghost. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? They're doubtful that he's corporeal, that he has a body. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Now, the hands and the feet, that's where the nails went through. So that would have identified, that would have identified the same guy that was on the cross. That's the same guy that's standing in front of us. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, see, that's the issue at hand. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's very tangible. Touch me, feel me. I have a body. That is necessary. That is necessary. Like we said, the resurrection implies, it implies a body. But why? Why is that necessary? Because when Christ died on the cross for his people, he bore the sins of his people and he died. But if he, that's the wages of sin is death. But if he stayed dead, if he only stayed a spirit, well, that's what happens to everyone at death. Your body is separated from your spirit. But if the cross worked, if it did what it was supposed to do, if Jesus really did pay for all the sins of his people, then his body, and not just the body he had, but a glorified human body with true human nature need to be given back to him, which is exactly what happens, which is why he invites, touch me, feel me. There's a continuity with his old body, and there's a difference, right? He's popping in and out all over the place, right? This is a glorified human body. It's a real human body, but it is a glorified human body. And he never has parted from that body. Jesus never gave up. Once he point from this point on, he has the same body today that he had then. Jesus is still human. We don't often think about that, do we? We think of him as off somewhere, kind of in the clouds, kind of ethereal, kind of like a spirit. Jesus isn't a spirit. He's a human. He is a human ascended at the right hand of God, tangible, and the one mediator between God and man. Verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, now we kind of understand, right? It's, we can understand why you would, it's too good to be true. This can't be real. And then he gives them the final tangible proof. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them, meaning ghosts can't eat. So this is the most tangible it gets. And they kind of, it's what brings them all together and as Luke is presenting it, it's certainty from Jesus' tangible appearance. It's very, very tangible. And now, having done this, we've seen certainty from the angel's proclamation from Jesus' words. We've seen certainty from the scriptures and the breaking of bread. We've seen certainty from Jesus' tangible appearance. Now there's a shift. Now there's a shift. Because, all right, uh, maybe Luke's audience believes, yeah, there's a historical resurrection. It's a historical fact. It took place. But the resurrection is not bare historical fact. It is that. It is real. It happened. But it implies something. It has a call. It has a charge. And that's the next two things that we see. The next thing we see is this. There's a commission. There's a commission to proclaim repentance for forgiveness. Verse, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's referring to his ministry with them for 
three to four years. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Psalms headed the uh, the third portion of the Hebrew Scriptures, the writings, so all of the Old Testament. There's things in each of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings that speak about Christ. All of those things must be fulfilled. Not just, yeah, I fulfilled them. They must be, because this is God's plan and program to redeem a people for himself. Notice what happens in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Meaning what? Here's all this stuff in the Old Testament, and he's, it's not that it's not there, it's there, but they're having a hard time understanding. Like the two on the road to Emmaus, they're, they're slow to believe, and Jesus opens their minds. He probably expounds for them the scriptures, but he's also, this is the idea of illumination, that the people and the only people that can truly understand the scriptures to their fullest extent are believers in Jesus Christ. You can read the scriptures all you want, but unless God opens your eyes, you're not going to believe. Unless the risen Christ opens your eyes, you're not going to understand him. And so what do you need to do to come to the scriptures? You need to ask the one who wrote them, hey, not hey, uh, Lord, Lord, I am a sinner. I cannot understand. Sin blinds my eyes. I need to understand. Would you open my eyes to understand the scriptures? And then and only then do you get to understand. You see, it's not that Christianity is not, we've got the historical facts, we worked it out for ourselves, and yes, we came to the logical conclusion that Jesus must be the Christ. Now, there is some of that, but the ultimate reality is when you go to your knees and say, God, you are God, and I need you to speak to me, and I know you have spoken to me in the scriptures, and I've been stubborn, and I've been rebellious, open my eyes to understand. It's faith-seeking understanding. That's how Christianity works. Faith comes first, and understanding flowing from that. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. You want to go to the Old Testament, you can find that the Christ had to suffer, and that on the third day he had to rise from the dead. But not only that, that's the historical fact, that's the certainty we've talked about, but notice, doesn't end there, and that repentance What is repentance? Repentance is not, it's not penance. Repentance is not penance. Penance is do some stuff to make God happy with you. Repentance is, repentance is turning allegiance from sin and from yourself, living life for yourself, being the captain of your own destiny. You're turning from that reality. Everyone starts off that way wanting to live for themselves, wanting to be the captain of their own destiny, wanting to rule their life. You turn your allegiance from that, and you bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's what repentance means. You're turning. You're turning your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You're entrusting yourself to him. You're bowing the knee to him. You're saying, you are my Lord, and I will follow you every day for the rest of my life. That's repentance. It embeds faith within it. And so Jesus says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we are all sinners. We all deserve God's just wrath because sin is not just doing naughty things. It is a slap, a personal slap to the face of an infinitely holy and worthy God. That's what sin is. It deserves an infinite punishment. That's why Jesus went to the cross, 
repentance for forgiveness of sins. Every sin that you've ever committed will commit if you entrust yourself to Christ. If you give up being Lord of your life and submit to him as Lord and entrust yourself to him as his, in his cross work, there will be forgiveness of sins. And notice what he says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, not just Israel, but all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the epicenter. You are witnesses of these things. The idea is the resurrection demands your allegiance, and it starts with repentance, and then now you have a job. The job is to proclaim just like the women at the tomb, they heard the message, they were believed the message, and then they had to proclaim the message. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Christianity does. It receives the message and then proclaims the message. And you're not alone. Look at verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What's he talking about? He's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant reality. When you're part of the new covenant, when you entrust yourself to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells each individual believer, and not just each individual believer, but the corporate visible church to do what? To do one thing. We have one mission. Proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But it's not just do it, muscle it up, the strength to do it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it. It is empowered. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you want the sequel to this, you look at Acts and you see how the early church was empowered to proclaim this message. So there's a commission. There's a commission to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. That's what the resurrection demands, but it demands one more thing. It demands that you join the community of worship centered on the resurrected and ascended Christ. Look at the last four verses of the Gospel of Luke. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany is basically on the Mount of Olives. It's right near Jerusalem. Uh, this actually happens 40 days later. Acts makes that clear. So he's, Luke's kind of compressing the timeline here. But if you want to see the kind of fuller version, you look at Acts. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now, that's significant, because the only people, the time that language is heard in the Old Testament is when the priest blesses the congregation of Israel. He, he lifts up, so Leviticus 9, the appropriate sacrifices have been given, and then the priest standing before all of the congregation, the temple, the tabernacle, was the, the beating heart of Israel. And when the appropriate sacrifices were given, the priest would lift his hands and bless his people, meaning God has favor on you, congregation. God has favor on you, assembly. Number six talk, gives the content of that blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. And it says that he's putting the name of God on the assembly. That's what Jesus is doing. The new covenant assembly, after his cross work, he is that priest. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He ascended at the right hand of God. But notice, did the blessing stop? 
It didn't, did it? It said while he was blessing, he was carried into heaven. Jesus is performing that same priestly function of blessing his people, putting his name, the name of his God, on his people from heaven. That's Jesus' role. That's his session at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the high priest, the only one through whom you can access God. And when you turn to him, not just as an individual, but as a people in faith, he blesses his people. He puts his name on his people. And notice the response, verse 52. And they, that's all the disciples, the church, the assembly, that's what church means, is assembly, they worshiped him. Do only to God, but it's now due to Jesus Christ because he is God. He has eternally been God, and they recognize him as the eternal son in the person of Jesus Christ. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And what? Verse 53, were continually in the temple blessing God. And you see this in Acts. They gather together at the epicenter. The temple is the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. And what happens, what happens is when the Spirit comes, you see this in Acts, now the Spirit indwells individuals and he indwells the church. And the church becomes the epicenter of God's presence on earth. That's why they're continually together assembling. Belief in the resurrection creates not only individuals, it creates a people. A people that must continually come together. Why? Because we are centered on Jesus Christ. We are worshiping the ascended Christ. We are worshiping our priest. That's what happens every Sunday when we come together. We are trusting Christ. We are praising Christ. We are assembled in his name. We have to be together because this is where God's presence is manifested in the new covenant era. So as we see all of this, how do we pull it together? Let's pull it together with some implications. Jesus has given sufficient proofs of the certainty of the resurrection. Announcement by angels, his words, his own predictions, the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, the proclamation of the gospel in word and the Lord's Supper and the tangible appearances of Jesus and more. There is enough for certainty for those who will believe. And notice, we're kind of in a different spot than the first generation. They could tangibly touch Jesus. We can't. So what do we have? We have the message from messengers, and we have the scriptures. We have the scriptures, and that is where our certainty lies. It's what Luke highlights. He highlights the certainty coming from the scriptures and the proclamation of the gospel. God opens eyes. The ultimate way you believe is through God opening your eyes. God opens eyes through these means, through the scriptures, through the proclamation of the resurrected Christ. Like we said before, the resurrected Christ could be standing right beside you and you not recognize him without God opening your eyes. Faith is never ultimately a knowledge problem. It is a heart problem. Unbelief is sin and culpable. And you need to plead for God to sovereignly open your eyes. Plead for him to do so because that's the only way it's going to happen. The call of the resurrection is first repentance and trust in Jesus as priest and trust in his cross work and his resurrection and ascension. 
Only through repentance and faith can you be forgiven of your sins. If you're here today, the call is for you. Repent and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven today. Talk to me, talk to Steve, talk to whoever brought you, but don't leave today without responding in repentance and faith in the resurrected Christ. And then responding to the resurrection and repentance means that you're commissioned. You're commissioned as a witness and a proclaimer of repentance for forgiveness of the sins. You, you partake in it, and then you spread it out like the women at the tomb. And responding to the resurrection and repentance also means that you join the people that Jesus has created through his death and resurrection. He created not only individuals, but a people. You join them and you gather with them regularly to worship the risen and ascended Christ. I know, let's just be real here for a minute. I know people come on just Easter and just Christmas and think that's okay. And if that's you this morning, I'm just going to tell you bluntly it's not. Not because it's a legalistic demand, but because Christ creates a people that joins together. And we are so thankful that you are here today if you're visiting. And come join us, not because of us. We're nothing special. That's the point of the gospel. We're nothing special. We're sinners, in fact. We are all sinners and deserving of God's wrath, but Christ saved us. And we want to join together continually. We want to worship Christ, and we want to help one another to worship Christ. That's what joining his people means. Repent for forgiveness and join the community worshiping Christ because of the certainty of the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the ascended Christ. You are the one mediator between God and man, and you're there. You're always there 24-7. You never take a break. You are the high priest that everyone must come to, that everyone must do business with. And I pray that, thank you. Thank you for granting me repentance. I didn't deserve it. It was only by your sovereign grace that you opened my eyes. And that's true. That that testimony could be multiplied in this, this group. It's only because of your sovereign grace and opening our eyes to see Christ. I pray that you would do that. If there are any here who do not see you yet, They're right beside your presence here in this church, but it's only when you open their eyes. And so we pray that you would do so, and we pray that we would continually be a repenting and trusting people, trusting in you, Lord Jesus, alone. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for what you did in your death and resurrection and what you are doing in your ascension. May you receive great honor and praise. May you draw the people whom you did purchase from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.